So the book of Hosea, we're in our summer series, as I, I've uh, been mentioning, we're in the Minor Prophets. If you have a hard time finding Hosea, find the bigger book of Daniel, hang a right, and uh, you'll get there. Book of Hosea, um, one of those places that uh, we have uh, the word of the Lord being spoken over his people. But what we're going to find out is that Hosea was just a little bit different than, uh, than some of the other uh, prophets. Take a look at verse 1 of Hosea 1. It says, The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the years of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, uh, they were kings of, of Judah, and Jer Jeroboam, son of Joash, was the king of Israel. And so unlike last week where we had the book of Joel, and we didn't have a place mark that we could say, okay, Joel was during this time, during this king, in this kingdom, he was speaking to these people, um, it was rather arbitrary. This uh, book of Hosea and Hosea's message that he receives from the Lord, we were given an exact date, an exact time, we, we can pinpoint where he was talking, what it was about, and what the context was in. So that's different. The other part of it is Hosea, unlike the other prophets, um, wasn't told to speak and use his voice, but rather to act and do and to illustrate with his life what the message of uh, the Lord was. So just to, uh, to uh, provide some insight to that, the other prophets were told by God, say this, speak this, let the people know these things. Whereas Hosea was, was told, Hosea, I want you to do something and I want you to live out this message. Look at verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute, period. Enough said, end of sermon, goodbye. <laughs> if you ever want to um, be aware of, uh, the thing, of not taking a verse uh, out of context and applying it to your life, this is one of those things. Just don't, just don't, you know, if you're, if you're doing the close your eyes, point to scripture, this is the word of the Lord for me, just steer clear of this, tape those pages shut or something before you do that because, you know, hey, go and marry a prostitute. And he goes on, he says, uh, uh, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. You're like, what? Are you sure? You, know, you just see Hosea, this godly, God-honoring man, and he gets this word, and he's like, for real? What? This will illustrate, the Lord says, this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Verse 3, so Hosea married Gomer. Now let me pause there. Um, parents, um, especially soon-to-be parents, if you're thinking of names, okay, may I just recommend you think of a different name other than Gomer. This is just asking for bullying. This is just asking for a mess. Do not name your daughter or your son, for that matter, Gomer. Okay, just don't. Uh, so Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. 
And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty. Uh, during this time, you had the northern and the southern kingdom, the divided nation of Israel, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he's saying, Jehu's dynasty, this was the king of the northern kingdom who was, who was just a, uh, a carnal um, uh, man just doing heinous things against uh, God's people. And he's going to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Verse 6, soon Gomer became pregnant again. And you'll notice, this isn't just God speaking to Hosea and saying, okay, here, I want you to act this out. It's an illustration. It's a Sunday morning sermon. It'll last like 32 minutes, and then you're out of there. No, this is like one pregnancy, nine months. Like God didn't speed this up back then. Nine months is nine months. Pregnancy is pregnancy. Second child, another nine months. And, and you can just tell Hosea, he's got the, the nations looking at him going, and you're a man of God? Come on. You married a prostitute. Now you're, you know, these kids are coming along. This is ongoing. So she became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. Another nine months. And, and the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo-Ruhama, not loved. For I will no longer show love to my people, uh, the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. So this, Judah's the southern kingdom, Israel's the northern kingdom. I'll show love to the south, but not the north. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. Verse 8. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she became pregnant again. So again, another nine months, more time. And she gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. You know, over 30 years of ministry, I've had many uh, opportunities, many um, occasions where um, I've, I've sat in, in pastoral counseling situations. And uh, not only from my own experience in my own life, but from other people's experiences, how they've conveyed it to me, that this is typically how things go. When, when uh, things are scarce, when resources are scarce, I tend to, and people tend to, kind of focus in on details and focus in on what's important. Maybe this has been the case in your life. When, when resources are scarce, whether it's finances or relationships or things, you tend to kind of, all right, emergency situation, um, uh, all hands on deck, what's going on? And we, we, we kind of, we're much more intentional with things. Conversely, when resources are plentiful, we tend to sort of get lackadaisical. We, we tend to get a little less precise with how we do what we do. Would you say that's the case? I know it's the case for me. When, when resources are plentiful, we pay less attention to things. When resources are scarce, <clears throat> we kind of pull things together. Well, here, both the northern and the southern kingdoms were very prosperous. 
God's people had moved into what? The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a very fertile place, a very prosperous place, a place that was very, very productive. And they've moved in and they are prospering. Life is good. They're not wandering through the deserts anymore. They're not, they're not being attacked by foreign armies. They are living a peaceful life. And little by little by little, the main things are no longer the main things. They're starting to get away from the the important things of life and paying attention to details. And little by little by little, they're wandering further away from the Lord. And they've they've got to this place of neglecting the Lord. So one problem was their lack of concern for God, the one true God. That's one side of it. The other side of it is their obsession with other gods. So lack of attention to the one true God and the other side of it is an attraction to other gods. Now, many of you know um, I am not a um, uh, uh, born and raised Texan. And so when we moved to Texas, um, I had to learn a lot of things, not just how to talk, but I had to learn um, other things too. And one of those things, I, I, I like to have a nice lawn. I just, you know, in my yard, I, I like it green. It's probably because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and you just look at your lawn and it grows. You know, it's just uh, it's one of those things. I like to have a green lawn, not a brown lawn, um, not a, a, a dirt lawn. Uh, and so when we moved in, um, <clears throat> I, I tried and I tried and I tried, and I was having varied success. And I was noticing other people around, and I'm sure some of you from, from time to time, I would, um, whether you knew it or not, I was picking your brain. How do you do what you do? And and I was gleaning information because I'm not a, a, a Texan uh, by birth or by um, being raised here. So I had to learn things. And so I started asking neighbors. And I started to be, why? Because I wanted my yard to look nice. I wanted it to be green. I wanted it to be fertile. I wanted it to, to uh, just to produce as it should. Just lawn. You know, talk to my lawn. Lawn, just, just do what you're called to do. You know, just be the best that you can be, right? Uh, I wasn't quite there. Uh, Y'all would be calling some authorities to come and get me if I was doing that. But I had to learn. And you think of Israel, they're they're in the promised land, and they're trying for the first time in a long time, they're trying to, to... grow things. Uh, back then it was an agrarian society, so cattle and, 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 and all their livestock, and, and then also the crops that they were growing. And as they're trying to produce, as they're trying to get their farm to produce their, their livestock and their, their goats and their cows, they're asking their friends. And if you, you know the history of Israel, when they came in and took over and, and took up residence in Israel, they were, they were supposed to eliminate all the Canaanites. But did they do that? No, they didn't. And so within Israel, you have these pockets of Canaanites. And so, so many Israelites, were their, their next door neighbors were Canaanites. And as they're looking to their resident, born and raised Canaanites, they're noticing something about their neighbor. They're noticing that their livestock are having healthy babies. And they're noticing that their crops are growing multiple times 
taller and more productive than theirs. And so what do they do? Just like Darren goes to his next door neighbor and says, hey, how do you make your grass green? They go to their next door neighbor and they say, tell me, what's, what's going on? And, and being Canaanites, their main focus, other than living a, a, a life and making a living, it was worshiping other gods, particularly two gods, Baal and Asherah. Particularly, those two gods were fertility gods. Ones that they would worship in order to benefit their crops and their livestock. And as the Israelites began to look over the, the, the fence into their neighbor's yard, and they begin to ask their neighbor what is the, the secret sauce to their success, their neighbors say, well, it's because we got the Asherah pole and we got the Baal idol, and, and that is a part of our worship. And so the Israelites begin to go, hmm, looks like it works for them, just like I Looked at my neighbor and I said, hmm, watering on Monday, Wednesday, and works for them. Might as well try it. And you see what begins to happen for Israel. They begin to incorporate things from the Canaanites into their own. They don't immediately leave God because that would be just the, an obvious wrong thing to do. But they begin to incorporate the, the worship of other gods into their worship of the one true God. It's something that theologians call syncretism. It's many things that in subtle ways we pull into our lives today as Christians. We start to dabble and we start to incorporate things that are not of God into our lives just because, hmm, can't hurt, can it? And this is what Israel was doing. Not only were they moving further and further away from the one true God, but they were slowly, little by little, incorporating things from the gods of Canaan. And this did not sit well with God. This was something that grieved the heart of God. They were neglecting God, but they started relying on other sources for their success. So as a living illustration, God calls Hosea to act this out and to live it out. And so Hosea and Gomer were married, and from day one, as expected, she was unfaithful. She was unfaithful. She was unrestrained, and she was unashamed, and they... They had three children. We're told that the first child was a son, and this first child's name was Jezreel. And you think, well, Jezreel, it's just a, a, a city name. It's just a name of a place. What harm could it do? And yet back then, Jezreel had a, a truly negative connotation to it. Jezreel's name was synonymous with despised one or despised place. Why? Because there had been many battles there that had gone on, much bloodshed. It was something that uh, had gone on there that had truly grieved the heart of God. In fact, uh, Jehu, the king then, had, had killed, you know the names of Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel and Ahab, they, much of their, their ongoings and workings and, and uh, stuff had taken place around Jezreel. And in fact, when Jehu took um, up the throne from his father Ahab, he killed 70 of Jehu's uh, kids and had their heads piled up at the gates of, Jez, uh, of Jezreel. This was a place of bloodshed and carnage. It was a place of, of destruction and despair, and it was truly a despised place. And so the Lord tells Hosea, I want you to call son number one Jezreel. It's a, it, because this is despised. This, this is something that, that turns the Lord's stomach. Uh, you talk about setting your kid up for success, right? 
It's just not happening. It's not that way. This was a symbol of God's anger. Jezreel was a stench and embarrassment and condemnation. The second child comes along. It's a, it's a girl. And Hosea is told to call her Lo-Rahama, which specifically means not loved, or I will not show mercy to this person. I will not show mercy. This is, this is God's response. And in fact, it's, it's the other way around. It's in fact an indication of, of Israel's attitude towards God. You ever have those, those kids of yours at that specific age of theirs where they look up at you as mom and dad and they go, you're not my mom. You're not the boss of me. And you're like, want to make a bet? You know? <laughs> You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. You know, they're three years old, right? Well, this is what Israel was doing to the Lord. They were saying, you're not the boss of me. We don't love you. And this is why Hosea called the daughter Lo-Rahama, not loved, because Israel was in fact saying to the Lord, we don't love you. We don't show you affection anymore. And this was Israel's response to Yahweh, the one true God. Their active rejection of God's love. And the actions of Gomer toward her loving husband, Hosea. Now I want to take a moment there just to pause and, and state within this, I truly believe that God is showing. You, know, you think about Hosea where he's at. He's taken on this wife, a wife that won't be faithful to him. A wife that is, is running after all these other men, all these other things. And he knows what could truly be of this relationship and how much he loves her and how much he truly wants to make this relationship work and, and how truly loving and, and, and positive and, and amazing this relationship can be. And his broken heart, I truly believe, is this story is an exposure of God's heart for each one of us. Gives us a glimpse into how God feels when we go running after other things. Finally, there was another boy that was born, and his name was Loami, meaning not my people. And this truly was God's response to Israel looking up and saying, you're not my God. You're not the boss of me. We don't love you. This is God saying, okay, if that's the way it's going to be. You will not be my people. This is the judgment that would come upon them. God would politely remove his presence and his care from them. And as a result, they would reap the consequences of their sin in full. And eventually, they would be exiled away from the promised land. And that would come um, in quick succession. This thing's a mess. If ever there was a mess in a family and in a nation and, and what was going on, this is it. Israel had rejected God. And yet, thankfully, that's not where the story ends. That's not where the story ends. You see, God intervenes and God begins to stir. And if you've ever read the Narnia Chronicles or you've, you've watched the Narnia Chronicle movies, particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have this frozen um, uh, nation, this frozen region, this frozen world. And, and what does it say? Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure begins to stir. Aslan is on the move. Aslan is starting to, to make his way. And there's this anticipation. And here in this story, you have a, a, the stirring of God, the stirring of God's heart because this is a broken relationship and what God does and what His character is, is He restores and He reconciles and He is moving. Take a look at verse 10 of chapter 1. 
It says, yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore. Too many to count. This is a, 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 a restating of the, the Abrahamic covenant. This is a restating. Your, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashores. And he says, then at the place where you were told you were not my people, that place of Jezreel, that place that's despised, that place that is, that is grieving to the heart of God, in that place where you were told you are not my people, it will be said, you are the children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will uh, will unite together. Remember, there was a divided kingdom. This will take place. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be. The day of Jezreel. Not the, the awful day, but the wonderful day when God again will plant His people in His land. Look at the, ver the first verse of second chapter. In that day you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Rahama, the loved ones. And there's this epic resolution to this mess, this broken marriage this, that's synonymous of this broken relationship between God and His people. If you step back and you take a look at this, there's nothing but carnage. And what God is saying here is, I am stirring, I am moving, and I am going to reconcile, and I'm going to turn this mess into an amazing miracle. And you take a look at each one of these names, these names despised and not my people and not loved. He turns it upside down. He turns it around. He says, this place that was despised will no longer be despised. It will be great, Jezreel. It will be amazing, Jezreel. It will no longer have the negative connotation over it. This place that was once like Chernobyl or so central uh, L.A. Or, or bad parts of De Detroit or, or Harlem or Brooklyn back in the 60s and 70s, this place that was synonymous with death and destruction and everything not God, it will be known for its glory. Not only that, but that which was not loved will be loved, and that which is not shown mercy will be shown mercy, and that which was not my people will be called my people, the very children of God. And God takes this whole thing and he says, you know what? I'm going to turn it upside down because I have a plan and a purpose for my people, and I love them with an everlasting love. This is the heart of God. This is the message of God. There's this change you notice it's not pain in the butt Jezreel. It's not despised Jezreel. It's great Jezreel. It's not, not my people. It's you are mine. It's not, not loved. It's you are loved. You are shown mercy. And Gomer, in the midst of your waywardness, in the midst of your rebellion and rejection and adultery, you have been shown mercy by a living God. Israel, in the midst of your waywardness, in the midst of your wanderings, you have been shown mercy. And for each and every one of us, you have been shown mercy by an amazing God who loves you dearly. This is the heart of God. Mercy, grace, pursuit, love. Turn over to chapter 3. It would be a great story even if we stopped where we did, but in chapter 3, verse 1, we're really given a picture of the heart of God. 
and his movement towards us, a graphic illustration. Then the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, the Lord said to Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Look at verse 2. So I bought her back. I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and measures of wine. Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. Hosea buys back. That which is his in the first place. He purchases her back. Does it sound like a familiar story? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. He purchased us back from our sin. He bought us just like Hosea bought his wife back. God buys his people back. You know, I think at times we, we kind of miss what's truly gone on. I think at times we, 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 we kind of candy coat what has truly happened. <laughs> Sometimes we forget what salvation is. Do you know that Darren was not pretty good? Darren was not just kind of making the grade. Scripture says that Darren was dead in his transgressions and sin. As for you, you were dead. As for Darren, he was dead in his transgressions and sin. As for Israel, they were dead. As for Gomer, she was dead. Purchased back. And we sing that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. I think we sometimes sing it this way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that encouraged you know, a person, pretty good person like me. You know, I once was disoriented, but I, I, you know, I found my way. I, I was, uh, things were a little blurry, but I, I, I got it. I got it together now. Things are good now. See where I'm going with that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, that uh, just kind of, you know, hey, made things right. Because they were just a little off. What does, the, what does the hymn say? A wretch like me. A wretch. A despised one. A prostitute. Wandering and chasing other gods. Wandering and chasing other interests that are not of God. And just like a husband longing for his wife, the grieving of God's heart. And yet he doesn't sit there and just go, well, you made your choice. No, what does he do? He pursues. He comes after. Just like Hosea was told to pursue his wife, to go after her, to purchase her back. What God has done for each one of us. Worship team, why don't you come up and join me? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just kind of, oh, not kind of, it does sum up what's gone on here.
You know, you, re- you start reading Paul's uh, writings and you know, places where he says, what a wretched man I am, who will save me from this body of death? He understood his waywardness. He understood his sin. He understood exactly what Christ came to do in the salvation that was purchased on his behalf. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, as for you, as for you, Darren, as for you, Crossroads Church, as for you, uh, people of God, you were dead. You were dead, not just half dead, part dead, kind of dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, when you chased after those things that weren't of God. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, that's sin. Yeah, go on. Next one. Next. (laughs) But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin. It is by grace you have been saved. Go on. And God raised us up with Christ. He purchased us back and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. How? In Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Gomer didn't sit there and just kind of, okay, I made my way back. I, I saw the light. I, may, you know, I made this happen. No, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Totally dead, completely dead. Not that, you know, we like to maybe put a candy coating on it. While I was beginning to get my act together, Christ died for me. While I was thinking godly thoughts and singing godly hymns and singing about His grace and, and really you know, being holy, Christ died for me. No. It says, in your transgressions and sin in the middle of your sin Christ died for you Christ died for me that is grace that is the work of Christ on the cross if we do it any other way if we explain it any other way we've belittled what Christ came to do on the cross and we basically say you came for nothing Christ died for you I think sometimes here in church we get thinking the longer we walk with the Lord we get thinking, well, he, yeah, he died for my errors. He died for my, my hang-ups. He died for my stuff. But, you know, he really came to die for the sinner. Man, can we just stop right there and go for each and every one of us? We're as sinful and as heinous and as wayward and as adulterous as Gomer walking our own way, marching to our own band, following our own small g gods. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not anything you've done. It's a gift of God so that none of us can boast. This is what he's done in our lives. And it's not an embarrassment to tell other people that. If anything, it gives him more of the glory. And this is the message that we share. A number of weeks ago, we, we shared this about the ministry that we have of reconciliation. And in the fall, we're going to get into this. In September, we're going to get into a series called Salt and Light. This is the message that we share with our community. Christ died for me. He died for you. I have been raised from death to life by Jesus Christ, and you can too.
That's the life-changing message that we share. And it's not a life-changing message if we can't believe that our lives were changed first. We can't. If we believe that we went from kind of holy to more holy, that's not a message. That's not hope. That's not the word for our community. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I've found. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I've been made alive in Christ. Now that's a message. Life-saving message. Let's all stand. I'm inviting you to bow your heads. Lord, you came to save a wretch like me. You didn't just come to encourage a pretty good person. You didn't just come to nudge me a little bit more toward due north. No, Lord, I was running in the opposite direction. I was heading in the wrong way. And your love compelled me. Your love made a difference in my life. You took me from death to life. And Lord, now I don't live according to my flesh. I live according to your Holy Spirit that's been placed within me. Lord, each person here is doing the same. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room that hasn't made that decision, who hasn't made that turn, who hasn't made that recognition, I pray that today the the good news would resonate in their heart. There'd be a heart change and an about face. And they'd experience life that comes through Jesus Christ today. Folks, you can do that today. You can make that decision for the first time. You can recommit again right here in this place. And Lord, we want to say that we're sorry for those things that we've done, that we've walked away from you. And we thank you for your great love that pursues us, the price that was paid so that we could have life, life to the fullest. And Lord, you have a message for our community, message of hope, message of life. No one is too far gone. No one has sinned too much. No one has made too many bad decisions to be outside of your care and your love and your pursuit. So, Lord, we want to play a part of that. We want to be a part of that message that's given to our community. Life, everlasting life to the full. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.